Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integration. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Welcome to JS Party. Thank you for joining us on this lovely Thursday afternoon or morning. Uh, depending on where you are. Today's topic is going to be super interesting and it's a little bit of a follow-up on last week's topic. We're gonna be talking about third-party and open-source dependencies, you know, how do we use them, when do we use them, and how do we support the ecosystem of open-source dependencies. Um, Joining the conversation today, we have myself, Safia, uh, Chris, Nick, and Kevin. How are you all doing? Good. Wonderful. Super. I guess I'm supposed to say terrific. Ter- we could just get all the adjectives out there. Throw in a supercalifragilisticexpialidocious too. Is that an adjective or a noun? Mm. Do I like? Would I say I'm having a supercalifragilisticexpialidocious day? I think it's a flexible word. I think it is both an adjective and a noun. It's quite atrocious. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's dive into today's conversation. Um, So following some of what happened last week with the event stream debacle, a lot of people have been uh, having discussions about supporting open source, using open source, and I figured we would continue that conversation with a little bit of a focus on how we interact with dependencies as software engineers. Uh, So the first question that I'm really curious to know about from you folks is, how do you decide when to use a third-party dependency or library uh, during your development process? What is the criteria in which you say, all right, it's time for me to bring in another library, um, something outside of my control into this code that I'm writing? Wait, we're talking JavaScript, right? So the answer is, does a package exist? So I, I mean, that's it, our approach, This right? is JavaScript, but if you're working in ecosystems that are, you know, like Java or Ruby, feel free to bring in those discussions as well. I'd be curious to know if this is like something language specific, um, if the environment and language you're working in kind of dictates the criteria that you use when selecting dependencies, because each programming language kind of has a different profile around like third-party dependencies and package management and stuff like that. But let's go with JavaScript for now. Well, it was a, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek answer, but sort of saying, you know, in this ecosystem, the tendency is to always reach for a third-party package. Uh, and I suppose what you're highlighting is that that is probably not always and everywhere the right tendency. But I think it, it is, you know, something that is almost, you know, cultural more than anything, is like different language ecosystems have different cultures about, and, and different ease of installation, right? Like if it requires manually pulling things in and doing a local build um, as compared to a simple add a line or do an NPM install save, like that's going to change how easy or hard it is. And that's going to dramatically lower the barrier to pulling dependencies in. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. I feel like I don't fit in because I don't like doing that. <laughs> I don't like pulling in very small packages. I like pulling in bigger packages that I don't want to write or don't uh, feel like I have the skills to 
to write properly. Uh, so you'll never see me writing my own crypto or anything like that. But um, for small things like like a simple, I don't know, custom filtering or, or custom like functional method for an array, I would probably just write that myself and then write tests for it. I'm curious to know, do you do that for things? One of the most common use cases for me for small packages is like trying to figure out if a string contains an email or a link or stuff like that. It's mostly like parsing and other mundane tasks that I don't have the patience to deal with. Um, Does that fall under your criteria of things that you would write on your own or would you bring in a third party dependency for that? That's a good question. Yeah, I, I uh, would always bring in something or, or look for something. I mean, if it, I mean, at the end of the day, if it's going to save me time, um, I'm probably going to go for it. Um, you know, I, I find I have the most success, or I mean, maybe maybe it's the other way around. I have the most failure when I try to implement something myself, which is it turns out to be much more nuanced than I expected. Um, and so, like, for example, um, you know, getting a executable in, uh, in, in the user's path, that is, is not always a straightforward thing to do. And so in that case, I'd want to pull in some package to, to do that for me because it's going to, you know, hopefully cover more edge cases and corner cases than I would have thought of. Um, so yeah, the, the, where I run into trouble is, is just trying to hand roll things that are just naively do it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I guess I start from there and I just naively do it and then, uh, use that as a learning experience. If I like, if it does get more and more complex, um, then I will reach for something or look, look to see what's out there. But I don't know, I guess it's good that we have differing, uh, approaches to this. Chris, I think you brought up one of the the key questions that I tend to ask myself when I'm looking at it is how much time is this going to save? Uh, you know, is this something that is a really complex thing or is this something that is like a three-liner that I could also do myself? Um, how close is the library to my desired behavior, right? So like if it's exactly what I need, that's going to save me a lot more time than something that I'm going to have to push and mold and move around and hack around often to get it to do what I want. And also how well supported is the library, right? Like if I run into an issue, uh, is this something where if I file an issue, somebody's likely to fix it? Is it something where if I submit a pull request, somebody's likely to merge it? Or am I going to be, you know, having to, you know, if I run into issues, support my own different, different branches of this library to get it to work? I mean, it seems like two different questions to me. One is, is do you want to pull in some third-party dependency to solve this problem? If the answer is yes, then how do we choose which one? Because if you're looking at NPM, there's going to be 10 things out there that do roughly what you want. Um, and so how do we how do we pick them? You know, once you've decided to use a dependency, you know, what goes into that decision? And yeah, I definitely say... You know, for me, the, the the major red flag is if I go and look at something and see, oh, this hasn't been updated in two years. Forget it. You know, um, th- that's that's not going to fly. I, I'm going to want something that has you know recent and depending depending on what kind of package it is, how how recent. If it's more of a a larger thing, I would want active development. If it's one of these tiny modules, you know, maybe something in the last six months, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. But yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, and then of course it depends, you know, what context you're doing this in. If you're, if you're doing it at work, if you're doing it in a, uh, like for a hobby project, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and, you know, where you work obviously has a lot to do with that as well. Well, and it raises kind of an interesting question when you talk about like maintainership is, and this is something that I think like, frankly, I haven't thought about that much, but it's come up a lot recently, you know, with the event stream hack and other things is like, how do you determine which maintainers you can trust, right? Is this, you know, activity that's in the last six months, is that from the same people that we started this package? Or is that from somebody brand new who we don't know if they built up trust or not? 
That's tough too, because the, like, it's just a rabbit hole of trust because the, that project might rely on a project that brings in 10 other projects that brings in, you know, a hundred other projects. And can you trust all the way down? Do you trust everyone along that, that chain to, to have verified everything? I think a big part of bringing in third party dependencies is about risk management and how much risk you're willing to have in your application. Cause I'm not going to say that we're going to live in a world where you get access to free open source packages that are always secure and mostly bug free with reliable and well-versioned APIs. <laughs> well, we might be able to if people fund that, but we'll be discussing that later. So stay tuned. Um, but yeah, I think a big part of it is just like, what are your organizations and your own like risk management techniques for a code base? Like, one of the interesting things that kind of like struck me about the event stream issue, and I think a couple of other things is there's usually such a like a huge time span between when people realize that something fishy is going on and then when it actually like becomes, um, I guess, mainstream news. So in the case of event stream, for example, there was like a five day gap between when somebody was like, seems like there's some malicious code in here and when it was actually discovered what the malicious code was and how it was impacting users and how it worked and all that um and in those five days there was like not a ton of engagement at least not as much as there was after those five days um and i found it kind of interesting that very few people who had like installed event stream or had it as a dependency, were like watching the repository on GitHub. Admittedly, it can get a little noisy, but it's one of those things where I feel like, for me as an open source maintainer, um, people's engagement with third-party dependencies ends at install time, and they're not willing to participate in like technical discussions about the future of the project or just keep up to date on what's going on and um, what's being merged, who's doing the merging and develop like a personal understanding of the project. Um, and I feel like that's the distinction between you installing a dependency and you installing an open source package is I do think you have to engage with the open source part of it to like be able to effectively use it in your own code. That sounds like a pretty big ask, especially when you look at the dependencies of dependencies issue, right? Like the example I've been using is like if I install a vanilla empty view application or react application from one of their templates, I end up with a thousand packages in my repository, right? From start new project that is using this framework, there are a thousand yeah. dependencies. Uh, there's no way I have the bandwidth to engage with a thousand communities. I don't even know what, you know, 950 of those dependencies are. Yeah. I don't think you necessarily have to engage with like every dependency, but they're the key ones that you need to do. So, for example, in that case, you would engage with the community that's working on managing that. Like, I guess it was, were you saying it was like create Vue app or something? Uh, Vue's coming from Vue CLI, but I mean, the event stream one is is like that's sort of the the example of the weakness of that, right? Because that's two or three levels down. This is a tiny library that happened to get picked up to handle this. You know, it and it ended up targeting this Bitcoin wallet that was probably, I want to say, two or three layers up the dependency chain. So I, I think putting it on the individuals is probably doomed to fail. Like we need to, to put some sort of process and technology helping solution in there, um, whether it's, you know, a system around validating dependencies and marking which ones like are validated and have you know maintainers that are have been consistent or or some way like we're trying to do this with security audits right now with npm audit um i say we the community uh, npm is trying to do this um but that's uh sort of reactive in the sense it's going out and auditing things and then when something has been shown to be a security problem then it puts it in there but i think we need a proactive version of that of how are we marking libraries as well-maintained or you know unmaintained and marking changes of maintainership and tracking that through all of our tools yeah and i think even if that proactive 
um, those proactive solutions end up being technical before you put something technical into place. You have to have a like person to person understanding of an open source project and who's maintaining it and actually follow a particular project that you're invested in as part of your ecosystem before just um, rolling out a technology solution. And I think, again, this might be my bias being someone who's had to maintain a few projects is people do tend to be reactive. They only come in when there's like a problem or, you know, you've been discussing like an architectural issue for like months and then they come in at like the end of the discussion with an idea or feedback. And it's it's a little frustrating when people feel like they're owed a certain amount of attention from a project when they're not giving it to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had those where you have this architectural discussion for months and months and months. And then at the end of it, you do a first implementation and that's when everybody wants to give feedback. I say, what yes. are you doing? Why is it? Why are you architecting it this way? This is terrible. And you say, we've been having this discussion and we've literally begging you yeah. to contribute your ideas. But I mean, once again, so we could, you could take that as a way to blame people, but I'm not sure that that's actually going to make it better because that's, that's just kind of how people are. It's not just, it's not limited to open source, right? Like people react to things that impact them. They don't go out searching for things. So like we need some way to, like if we're, if we're looking for this to be an individual demand or individual sort of ethics problem, it's never going to solve the problem because I, people can't, they're overwhelmed. Don't think it has to be on the individual, but it certainly has to exist at the level of at least like an engineering team. Do you think that there's a problem uh, that there's a disconnect between the source that you can view and what might actually be in an NPM package? Yeah, that's definitely like another tricky thing is like the thing that's on the NPM registry is not the thing that's on github.com. Mm -hmm. And that void um, does cause a lot of problem again, especially with like third party dependencies. Yeah, I think you need a way to have visibility. I'm not sure that you can require, because people don't have to host their code on GitHub. That's one private company, but there needs to yeah. be some way to transparently see what is the code that got released in this package. Uh, sure. But a, a lot of teams, if they were going to do a security audit, they'd probably start at GitHub and be looking at the code and, or I mean, where the code is hosted and, and looking at the, the source code of it to try and understand it and see that there's no, like trying to and make a determination that there's no vulnerabilities. But what they're actually getting it from an NPM install could be completely different. Yeah, I think you might be able to, well, so once again, it's it's hard it's hard to make requirements across entities. Um, I mean, you could, there are things you could do with hashing, right? So you say, okay, we're going to do a hash of exactly the source code at this point and then publish that anywhere. Like if I look at a release on GitHub and I look at a release on NPM and have that be a way to verify that. Uh, but you could also have NPM say, we're going to host the code in a way that you can browse it, for example. Yeah, uh, there's you still run into problems, though, I think. And I'm not advocating for this kind of thing. I just think that it it's a, a gray area where problems can easily come up. But like on Dojo, for example, we write in TypeScript and then publish uh, UMD packages to to, no, or to NPM. And I certainly want, wouldn't want to force the users of it to have to compile our TypeScript. They can just bring it in and use and use the UMD. Uh, but I wouldn't want to have that on GitHub, the UMD, UMD part either. So right. it's, a, it's just a, a problem area, but I'm not sure that there's really a solution. That's really interesting. Yeah, I wonder how you would, like, could you have a, like, here's the compiled, like at compile time, it generates something that you then check in. I don't know how you'd do that. Yeah, And you can't guarantee, once again, that it's the same. Like anything that is checked in deliberately could be maliciously manipulated, right? It's got to be something that's generated. Um, I, I, I feel like this is... Uh, it, it's like it, we're, we're talking like people don't know what they're deploying. I mean, uh, if you don't know what you, you're deploying, that's, that's a problem, sure. Well, that, um, that is what happened with EventStream, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean... It, if you okay, say you've solved that problem and you know what you're deploying, and so you're in your development environment, you npm install or yarn install or whatever, you have your lock file. I mean, you're you're gonna see what's 
what's in your node modules and 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 you know if everything's working properly that's what you're going to get when you deploy it um you would look in there uh you might uh, obviously if you if you look at the github repo that's not always going to be the same stuff so you have to look at your your node modules but i mean uh, i i guess i'm i'm i i wasn't present for the the chat last week um but uh yeah it's uh i don't know if we're if we're going down that road into back into the discussion about event stream and stuff but um yeah it's it, that that's a tough problem and, and and you know if you you can either pin your dependencies or something and then manually validate everything that you pull in or you can just trust people not to do stuff bad and and deploy things and it's all about you know how much time it's going to take and how much risk you're willing to accept i mean at the end of the day and so it's either it's either you hand check everything or 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 have some tooling that to 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 help you do that you know um yeah i think the interesting thing about event stream is definitely like very edge casey in the world of um in the world of like dependency related security issues there were just like a lot of really interesting things that happened with that um, but I think you highlighted something really important, which is having knowledge about what you're actually deploying. Um, and I think that's just another criteria for deciding whether or not you are going to use a library is do you have a certain amount of confidence about the code that's written? Um, it's quality. It's like longevity. Um, have you just like done a look through as an engineer to see if it checks all the boxes without even looking at its dependencies or anything. Um, sometimes I find that that's something that I don't do often, uh, which I'm sh ashamed to admit. Um, and certainly uh, like engineering teams I've worked with, um, there is definitely not a ton of like looking through things to validate the code, the license um, and like code quality and all that. Um, but I think it's getting better with like tools like, that exists that allow you to confirm those things. I'm going to take issue with the statement that most people know what they're deploying. Uh, I just ran for, for fun. I ran install create react app, which is I think what a lot of people use to start building their react applications. Uh, NPM tells me that running that to create a blank react app added 1,775 packages from 679 contributors. Uh, so if I go in there and I look in my node modules, ls node modules, um, I have I see packages like topo, T-O-P-O, T-R-46, S-V-G-O, I-N-I, internal IP, invariant, H-E, hash, hash base. Uh, like, I have no idea what a lot of these packages are. <laughs> and... My intuition is that most people who are deploying React apps also have no idea what any of these packages are because they're probably two or three or four or even, you know, I don't know how deep the, the tree goes, but like if I deploy a React app built on this, like I'm, I'm, make, I'm assuming that none of these contain an obfuscated malicious piece of code. Yeah. Um, so I think, like I was saying before, I think the issue of like deep dependencies, um, I'm forgetting the word for it now. The thing that's like a dependency of a dependency. It's on the tip of my tongue. Oh my goodness. Nested dependency or subdependency? I, I guess that might be the word. I think like that's always just gonna transient dependency. There are ways from to Mark Reader in the chat. Yeah, transient dependencies. Thank you, Mark. Um, I think that's always going to be a little unsolvable just because at that point you're like if someone truly wants to figure out an exploit, they will. And it's very hard to be proactive about those to a certain extent. Like there's a lot of safety checks you can do and like tests and validations and stuff like that. But I think if somebody really wanted to do something malicious using some, you know, transient dependency, they could. But I think it's unfair to ask people to check those deep down dependencies, but it is fair to have them be aware of like how Create React App works, what's being loaded and the general architecture of the project. Like that's a reasonable ask. Um, yeah. And what it's using just as at like top level dependencies. Um, 
anything deeper than that, I think that's where you need to have like automated tools doing the checking and just pray that people in the world are good and won't try to mine Bitcoins um, <laughs> all the time. I think that, that that's a good a, a good place to start. And then you do get a little bit more security through the the trust of, of something like Create React App, which is huge and hugely popular. Uh, there's a little bit of comfort in if there is a problem, it's probably going to be found out pretty quick. Um, and you can kind of lean on that a little bit, but you might be bitten. Just like in the case of EventStream, you might be bitten for a while. So I think this discussion around kind of how do you do security checks and audits and what is the process for bringing in a third party library is a good segue into the next segment, which is what are some of the processes and steps that companies have for deciding whether or not to bring in um, external dependencies? Uh, We'll be talking about that right after the break. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. So I'm curious to know uh, for where you currently work now or where you've worked before or any interesting processes you've heard from other companies, um, do you have a checklist or a process for bringing a library into your code base and what does that process look like? So, yeah, I mean, the, for most of my career, that's been the case. There's really no process. Does it, does it do what you want? Will it, will it help us ship? You know, it, <laughs> yeah, add it. Who cares, right? That's, that's the, the, the process has been no process. Um, uh, now I am uh, at a larger company, and um, so it really just it depends what you're building and who you're building it for. Um, you know, different clients will have different requirements, um, and so, you know, that might be certain licensing requirements, um, you know, but uh, if we're building anything at all, at, at bare minimum, licenses are going to be checked, um, you know, but uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I imagine it varies per, per team to team uh, a little bit as well in, in, in so far as. Uh, how stringent they are about about adding new dependencies, um, and maybe that's typical of any large company. Yeah, I work for a consulting company, so I get to work with a lot of different teams, and it's kind of the same thing. It depends uh, and varies from team to team. Sometimes we just come in and they've already got what they think we need all set up, and we're just going to work with that. And we have to go through an approval process if we want to bring in something else. Other times we'll let them know what we want to build and they'll, they might give us direction on like, Oh, use angular, use this. And we might put that and we'll actually put in our uh, contracts with them. Like this is the open source that we're going to use. And I won't list everything. I'll say like, Oh, we're going to use angular, uh, but not the 10,000 dependencies that come with angular. I'll just put angular and assume that they understand that. Um, and then, but, but then if we need to bring in something else, it's usually just a, a discussion about why we think we need it. And, uh, yeah, license licenses are checked as well, but, uh, assuming that there's no problems there, then it's pretty easy to, to justify it. And do you, uh, you know, typically check the licenses all the way down the dependency tree? Uh, good question. No, <laughs> probably should. That's kind of an interesting question, right? If, if a framework, for example, asserts that it's MIT licensed. What happens if it pulls in code that is, for example, GPL licensed? Mm, Companies won't use it. (laughs) That's what happens. (laughs) If they notice. That's the thing, I think. Like, I try and check the licenses of the the direct dependencies that I will think of uh, or or need uh, and then rely on trusting the um, those projects to have done the due diligence on the dependencies that they need and so on. Uh, which isn't perfect, of course, 
but it's it's all about whether they notice, I guess. Right. As as a side note to this, um, there's uh, at, at least for like JS Foundation projects, and 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 maybe even um, they have like a free thing for open source projects. There's this thing called FOSSA, F-O-S-S-A, and, and what they do is they automate license checks of open source projects, and so. Like Mocha has this setup where you can go and look at the README and it has like this information from its like FOSA analysis, which which talks about all the licenses used um, all the way down our dependency tree. And so if you have something like that um, on your open source project, that might be able to help um, people who want to adopt uh, enterprises that, that worry uh more about licensing than than maybe your average company. So uh, that's something to check out. It's called uh, FOSSA, F-O-S-S-A. Mark Reader on the Slack channel also just posted a link to a node package called the NPM license crawler. Um, and it looks like it is uh, basically a license checker for all of the dependencies in your node modules. Um, and it just spits out a report of all of the different licenses you're bringing out or bringing on. Um, so I think that accomplishes a similar task if you want to, you know, just be running the checks yourself as part of your process. Thank you for sharing that, Mark. Ooh, I'm going to run that on my create react app empty thing and see what happens. Oh, I'd be curious to see too. Okay. So what do I need to do? Install it globally and run it. I the, guess the thing that, that you see, um, often in, in these types of tools is projects that have no license at all. <laughs> so what do we do with these? You know, yeah. So. That I think the onus is definitely on the maintainer. Uh, if you, I think if you do see that, you could probably just reach out to them and request that they add a license. I think most of the time it's just a lack of knowledge um, or time on behalf of the person who made the package to add a license. Um, I think GitHub has made that a little bit easier by adding the license as their one of their dropdowns in like package creation. Um, and just by like hiding it a little bit more in their UI and having it as part of their like checklist for project health. I'd, I'd love to see how those kinds of UX UI decisions on GitHub's part have changed how many projects, new projects emerge with valid licenses to start. But um I think the licenses are, are, are one front to explore. I'm curious to know, have you worked at any organizations where they have had um, security teams that will audit packages um, before bringing them into your code base? I have, yes. And that, uh, that resulted in one guy um, manually reading source code and then determining whether or not it could be used on a project. Interesting. It, I don't think it was efficient. <laughs> yeah. Was this person like a security expert who was used by different engineering teams within the company or what was the relationship like between that person and the yeah. engineering team? Were they part of the team? They were more um, like security was more their main thing and they would work on that. Um, and they, so you, anytime you wanted to bring in a dependency, you'd have to go through them and they'd have to uh, put their approval. And I know that they ran some, some automated scans, but then also did some manual things that I wasn't aware of. Um, but the results were almost always comical. Sounds like you might have some interesting <laughs> stories, but we don't have to dive into them. Um, I have worked at um, organizations where you had to fill out a form um, before you brought a third um, third party dependency in or started using some external like SaaS service or whatever. Um, and they were checking for things like, oh, is this uh, software project or this uh SaaS service, like HIPAA compliant? Do they serve their website through SSL? There was like a couple of like questions that you would have to fill out um, and submit just to like engineering managers about the project before you could use it. I think that's like the most level of process I have seen at any of the organizations I've worked on where you kind of have to like go out of your way to like check things yourself and fill out the information. And then you're also like responsible for certifying that the information you provided is accurate and if like goes wrong um or something is off you like have responsibility over that i have the answers now by the way of the licenses invented it took me a while to put together the bash string to you know 
separate out their nonsense and strip white space and sort it and unique it and all that. But uh, I count, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27 unique license strings, um, including combos. So it says Apache 2.0 or MPL 1.1. Uh, some th- that I've never heard of. What is WTFPL? I've never heard of that. Uh, <laughs> I think it's whatever the f*** you want. I'm cursing a lot in this podcast episode. I'm sorry. Um, um, so there's WTFPL. There's ISC, which I also don't know what that is. Um, that's the default one. The default one? Okay. Or if you like did NPM init, uh, it gives you ISC as your license string in there. Okay. Oh, uh, yes. There's some that are various versions of cc creative commons different ones mit mit x11 interesting mpl 2.0 public domain unknown http interesting um and one that's just says c license in license.md so the uh tool is not perfect but gives you a sense of the varieties no gpl showing up so i guess i can keep using create react app Please don't license your code under Creative Commons. Yeah, kind of wonders. Wonder if it lets me dig into which ones come from which license. Uh, I think I can output to like a CSV or something that would let me see that. But yeah, kind of an interesting exploration of like what is CC by 4.0 versus CC by 3.0. I think they're different versions of the Creative Commons license. I might be wrong though. Yeah. Interesting that people would use that for coded dependencies. Yeah, I've never seen that. Um, It would be neat to see which projects are doing that in particular. So if no one has anything else to share on, you know, organizations having a process for bringing in external libraries, I'd love to jump into the discussion on how both you as an individual and then your company um, contributes to a healthy open source ecosystem. And what does that relationship look like um, and what you and your organization can do to make sure that open source packages are thriving. So I think we can take a little bit of a break and then we'll jump into that discussion. I'm sure it's going to be, be an interesting one. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams. Deploy, manage, scale faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Managing infrastructure is easy for teams, whether you're running one virtual machine or thousands. Use our special link to get $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free. Head to do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. So we're back. We are discussing ways that your organization can contribute to a healthy open source ecosystem. Uh, During the break, we got a conversation going about non-traditional ways that your company can fund open source projects. One of the things that was mentioned is donating engineering time to an open source project. Um, So having somebody who's got like a day or a couple of hours a week to contribute to open source software that their company uses. Um, And we were just kind of talking about whether that's considered a form of funding um, and coordinating all that and other fun things. So we're going to continue the conversation from there. So, yeah, this idea of people versus money is really interesting because there's kind of multiple ways that a company might uh, have their own engineering time focused on open source. Like you have the Facebook model where they have a set of Facebook open source projects that Facebook engineers work on. Uh, And they probably also have some folks who work on third party things but really like there's this like corporate run uh open source project type model um then there's the model where folks will literally you know they're using a technology and they'll hire somebody who is a core developer there and have them dedicate either part or full time towards working on that so for example uh elm as a language as i understand it the creator of elm is 
hired or was hired by a company that uses Elm and he is paid just to work on Elm uh, because they use it. They want to ensure the robustness of the tools they're depending on, things like that. And then there's the, I use this project and I'm allowed to put some time into, you know, say I run into a bug, I can go and fix it and submit that back or things like that. Like all of these are different models uh, within the sort of context of we're spending engineering time to support open source. The one that I've had the most kind of interaction with is probably two and three, uh, which are situations where, you know, I think with something like React, it's a little bit different because Facebook was the person or the entity that open sourced the project. It was something internal that was then made public. Um, So I think that's a little bit different than like someone independent of any company starting a project um, and then getting support for that. And the examples that I've worked in it, it's generally the way the relationship works out is the open source project has some sort of roadmap or some sort of action items that need to get done. Um, And the company that is going to be funding engineering time on those action items has some sort of like interest in seeing them be done for their own internal reasons or whatever. And they make, I guess, an in-kind donation or a commitment to have their engineers working on it and collaborating actively with um, the open source contributors who are not affiliated with that company. Um, there's always like an interesting like dynamic when you have like a team of people who are just open source contributors uh, who've like started the project or are very invested in it. And then a group of people who get paid to work on it by their companies for a certain amount of time. Like they tend to like come in with different perspectives on how like how to solve things and how to allocate resources just by virtue of their different situations. Um, And then the third, I think, is like more of like the Ruby model. Um, I have not had an experience personally with that one yet. So I would say two is the one that I've had the most experience with. What, what's what's the Ruby model? Oh, um, that's the one where like because a company is invested in a technology succeeding, they have an engineer working on it. Um, and I think that's the case for like Shopify, which is deeply invested in Ruby, um, Basecamp, which obviously created Ruby and is still deeply invested in it for, for Rails. Rails. Yeah, Rails. Um, so things like that where you are like. I guess it connects a little bit more so with two, but I think in the case of two, it's more than one or two people working on something. It's like a whole team that's partly contributing to open source. What what I've kind of picked up on, um, you know, I haven't worked at a super mega corp for very long, about a year. And before that, I worked for small companies. But with these larger companies, it seems, and and my my interactions with people at larger companies, it's... Often it's the case that it is really difficult. Like it's it's so difficult for a uh, a developer who uses some third party dependency to actually contribute because there's a bunch of bureaucracy involved. Uh, it's got to get signed off by legal and all this stuff. Um, and you know the more dependence, it, it, I mean, where, where you get into big problems, it's like it's like these. There are more dependencies you pull in, like if you're in the JavaScript ecosystem, um, the the harder the harder it even becomes because you can't you can't spread it. It's just like way too much red tape, you know. If there's like 20, 20 uh, projects you want to contribute to versus one, you know what I mean. And so, you know, I, I think a a a a question that we can, I mean, I, I don't have any magic solutions, but something we can start thinking about is how, how can we make it easier for, for larger companies and their, their legal departments or, or what have you um, to, to allow their developers to contribute to these, to, to these open source projects? Um, you know, maybe that is some sort of certification. Um, I, I don't know, but um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly no lawyer, but uh yeah, that's 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 kind of a problem I've I've noticed, and um, I don't know. I just I'm not sure where to go on that one. That's really interesting, actually. Um, 
if you look at what Tidelift is doing on the financial side or what some of the foundations like the JS Foundation do on the financial side, right? Those are organizations that are set up to allow big companies to financially contribute to the projects that they're involved in without having to create relationships with all the individual developers. Um, I wonder if you could set up a similar sort of arrangement where they you know, are asserting things about those licenses such that legal doesn't have to check them all out individually, but rather can say, okay, these are all okay for our people to contribute to. Yeah, that's, that's a cool idea. I, I wonder about, though, if you were to take a foundation um, say the, whatever the merged node and JS foundation looks like, um, you know, hypothetically, uh, and, and you, you wanted to add this thing to it that said, okay, um, you know, you are a member. And so therefore we have, um, mm, I don't know, vetted all these projects. I mean, uh, basically anybody who would be a member of, of that, I mean, this is a trade foundation. Any 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 member company um, would need to vet any project added. You know what I mean? And so that would potentially cause some conflicts where a um, you know maybe a project wants to join the foundation, but it competes with a product um, owned by one of the member companies. You know what I mean? I I, I feel like that's something that needs to happen separately um, mm. from at least a trade organization for that reason that it's just like there's too much potential for conflict. Uh, uh, conflict that's, of interest. that's interesting, right? So the vetting is not just sort of legal standpoint, but are we contributing to something that is potentially a competitor and things like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it, companies are, are not just worried about the licensing. They, they want to make sure that we're not contributing to a competitor. So... There's only so much that like an independent open source project can do. From some of my experiences with it, it's not actually as hard to get all of the paperwork done as some people might make it seem. It's just, yeah, obviously, I think it depends on what team you're in and like it, it's very specific situations. But I think for some of the people I know who work at big megacorps and contribute to open source projects I'm affiliated with, um, it's not like the worst thing in the world. Could it be easier? Yes, but it's not like boundary setting or um, like a complete barrier to open source. And I think an organization has to figure out internally to set up a smooth and quick process uh, for getting people into a position where they can quickly contribute to open source projects that the company has vetted out. And it's one of those things where if your organization is committed to making it happen or values open source, they're going to invest the time in making that process smoother. Um, and if they're not interested or super committed to open source, then it's not going to be as big as a priority for them. Um, so I think I generally tend to place the onus on the company with money and lawyers to figure this out as opposed to the community because openly, ultimately it is an internal process, not something that open source projects has, have too much say in. Yeah. And another perspective that they could potentially take is from a marketing perspective. Um, if you're allowing your developers to occasionally contribute to open source projects, that's a big marketer for uh, future developers that you want to hire in a lot of cases. Yeah, I've definitely seen that a lot of companies where, um, you know, they have one person come in and start contributing into a project and they realize there's this like whole talent pool that they wouldn't have had access to through their traditional recruiting means. And recruiting is really expensive, especially for engineers. And it can definitely pay off if you use open source contributions as a recruiting pathway. Absolutely. And if you look at uh, someone's GitHub repo, when you're thinking about hiring them, uh, you should only do that if you're also actively letting your employees contribute to open source. Yep. What do you all think about the trend towards funding people to work outside of companies on open source projects. So whether that's through formal organizations, like I know the Ruby community has Ruby together where they were fundraising and trying to get, you know, and they, they literally hired people to work for Ruby together to work on Ruby infrastructure. But then there's also these more informal things like uh, open collective projects, getting themselves funding via that people doing stuff on Patreon um, or the Tidelift subscription, trying to fund 
essentially developers to directly work on open source outside of the context of a company. I have experience with that. Um, there have been two occasions in my life where I've been funded to work on open source. One was through a grant from a nonprofit entity to the open source project I worked on. And the other time was a private donation from a company that was invested in the project. Um, so it wasn't like Patreon or Open Collective. It was kind of like a bit more, I guess, formalized would be the word for it. Um, and I found it really valuable, like just having like two weeks or like a six month contract to just be paid to work on something and invest all my time in it was such a huge boon to the open source project because I had the time to just focus on something and like get it done. And it, it was also just like fun for me to be paid for something that I love to work on, which is like ultimate life goal for a lot of people. Um, so I think when it is like a private company or a grant from a foundation or a nonprofit group or a government to work on something, um, it can be like really successful and great. Um, and I've also seen situations where they've actually been able to like employ entire teams of people because they got, you know, multi-million dollar grants for a project. Um, the Patreon thing, I don't have too much experience with. I don't know how I feel about it because I feel like with Patreon and like Open Collective and stuff like that, a lot of it comes down to celebrity a little bit. Um, and people are more likely to donate to the maintainers and contributors who are most visible in a community. And that might be the person who's most active and doing the most work, but it might also not be. So yeah, those things are always tricky because they tend to be mostly funded by private individuals as opposed to companies in the case of Patreon specifically, and generally spread through word of mouth or social media where um, being a name in the industry plays a big role in how likely you are to get funded. So I think those are like the two thorns with that situation. Yeah, it seems like Open Collective in particular, and, and the successful folks I've seen on Patreon actually try to bring companies into it. Like the individual donation stuff really doesn't scale very easily. And it's a question of like, should it be individual engineers donating? Like that seems like a pretty sketchy way to support this stuff. <laughs> um, you know, where where I've seen some more success, people are essentially making a business out of it, right? Like uh, Evan Yu, who does um, Vue.js, like the big donors are doing it because it gets them a, their, it gets their brand and a link on yeah. the pages of the docs and things like that that send over so it's you're turning it into a business essentially um it, it i'd love to see something you know where we were well funding people to work in this because i feel like you know this is the you know the infrastructure of modern software open source is where like this is what makes modern software much more productive and eat faster to get to things than uh it was five or ten or even you know however long ago uh but I, I'm not sure these models are scalable. Like, I'm wondering, is there a scalable model out there for funding independent open source development? So I, I missed the last uh, minute or two of the, the chat, but, um, you know, I, I feel like, yes, that is, that's, it, it, it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work if you, you know, aren't, uh, you aren't freelancing. It doesn't work if you're already working two jobs. It doesn't work if you're a single parent. Like it, like you can't <laughs> pay somebody uh, like a, a thousand dollars a month and and you know pretend that's enough to live on. So, I mean, w w if if we want to go funding people, and I mean, uh, what the holy grail is, you need to pay people a, a, essentially a competitive salary. And a lot of people, and myself included, uh, you know, I have I have kids in a in a in a in a mortgage and stuff, and I'm I'm not gonna I'm I don't, don't want to be a freelancer anymore. I want I want health insurance. If you're in the United States, you know, it's uh, it it just, gosh, well that's another thing too, you know, health insurance for open source uh, <laughs> developers. But yeah, yeah, it's just it doesn't it doesn't work for everybody. It it can it can be difficult to if a project in particular is receiving funds instead of an individual, it can be difficult to mm, it's like political about what you do with that money as well. And so, 
Yeah. I, you know, what I what I would love to see, you know, at least for for my project is just give give me your development time. You know, you don't you don't need to you know try to that's that's what I think is really going to to sustain open source um we need that in in addition to to funding um and you know i saw this 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 great thread on twitter i don't have it handy about you know how how donations are, are incredibly problematic for a lot of companies because it's like you need a you need a product order you know it's like you need to be purchasing something in order to spend money um and they make it really difficult to just give money away and so what are you buying um, one solution was, well, you're buying support uh, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm, I, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not a support desk. I'm, I'm, I'm a developer. I don't want to support my project. I want to maintain it. Um, and, and I don't want to be on call or, or what have you, you know, it's, uh, the support is also not the one, you know, be all solution for it unless you're, I don't know, red hat or something, but we all know how that ended. The billion-dollar acquisition, right? <laughs> Who was it that acquired them again? IBM. Okay, right, right. Um, in both of my cases, there was a nonprofit entity that um, companies were able to donate their funding to. So, unfortunately, I'm a little misinformed about how it worked internally from their end. Um, but it because they were working with another incorporated entity to process the funding, it was a little bit easier and. They had their stuff worked out internally. And I think that's what tends to be the most helpful is when it's a corporation talking to another corporation and sorting things out that way, as opposed to like a corporation donating to a Patreon or an open collective. Um, I think open collective technically yeah. is a 501c3. Um, and all of the projects under its umbrella are physically sponsored projects. So it might work a little bit more smoothly. Open collective is a for-profit. Oh, okay. Cancel that. I am misinformed on the topic. Um, for the group I'm affiliated with, the parent organization is a 501c3, and all of the open source projects under its umbrella are physically sponsored entities. Um, so it tends to work out easier just because there is like an incorporated tax entity behind all of these open source projects. Um, I guess that is not the case for Open Collective, which is interesting because not how I understood it. Um, but yeah, someone on Twitter made the really funny joke that um, if a company has a fax number, then corporations will like move really quickly to work with it because it's supposed to be like established and prestigious. Um, kind of just a tongue in cheek comment about how companies like to work with older established organizations. So all you have to do to get funding for your open source projects is get a fax number um, and start putting it on your letterhead. And your read me in the request uh, the the request for commits podcast. Um, you know, rest in peace. The um, you know there was a great episode about uh, grants for open source work, uh, and so um, and it's it's kind of yeah it, yeah you can get grants, but um, I was thinking you know I want to apply for a grant, and so I started looking into it, and it, and it turns out like I wanted to apply for what was it? Mozilla's thing. So Mozilla has a, like an open source grant they give out. And it turned out it was really, they, they really did not want to give a grant to an individual. They only were really comfortable with giving a grant to an entity of some sort. And so that, that's also kind of a stumbling block, I think for, for a lot of people, um, you know, maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's you. You if you're just an individual, you're going to need to find some some sponsorship, maybe by a foundation or somebody who wants to. You know, I, I don't even know how that works or why it is the way it is, but um, that it there's just it's that's kind of tough. Yeah, well, and you know, there's lots of people trying to solve this problem because I think we acknowledge that it's a need, but the dollar figures that people are able to get to right now are still so low, right? Like if I look at Open Collective. The most successful project on Open Collective is Webpack. I think largely because it had Sean Larkin doing incredible marketing for it. Um, and their yearly budget is just under $400,000, which is enough to pay for two full-time engineers, maybe three. 
maybe. Uh, you know, tide lift is a really interesting uh, proposition. They're you know sort of packaging things together and saying we're going to provide professional support in a way so that funds maintainers yada yada yada. I look for you know very popular packages on there like Babel. Their monthly estimate of how much money would flow through to Babel is ten dollars. Babel Core is forty. Um, Ruby on Rails four hundred dollars for a monthly. So like. We're talking very small amounts of money here. And there have been a couple folks who managed to support themselves with Patreons, but yeah, it's it's a rough market. Like there's it's infinitely easier to get yourself a consulting gig if you're wanting to do this type of thing. Uh, you know, and be independent, which is what this involves. Um so yeah, I don't I don't know what the solution is. None of the the attempts out there seem to be getting anywhere close to scale. I think some good action items for anyone who's listening um, and does want to like give back to the community or start to be more formal about this is start talking to your engineering management about figuring out a way to dedicate some of your time to contributing to an open source project in your stack. Um, It's probably going to take a lot of effort, but, you know, depending on how management feels about it and how things work at your company, you can get into a position where you're spending a couple of hours a week just contributing to open source. Um, that's one avenue if your company doesn't have the infrastructure to like donate to an entity or all of that stuff. Um, and then also, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is if you're using an open source project, just email people and ask them to come in for a training or a talk and pay them for it and have that serve as like a purchase they can make. If the contributor is willing, that always works as well. Um, So there's a lot of avenues for you if you're willing to advocate for it to um, have your company engage and contribute to a healthy open source ecosystem. And you can help without diving into code. There's lots of additional things like project management goes a long way in open source or even just triaging issues and being able to you know, help somebody filed an issue, you know, does this have all the information we would need to reproduce it? All those different things. Like there are many, many ways to contribute. Yeah, that's a great point too. That's true. But at the same time there, you know, there isn't this like culture, uh, this like hacker ethos around project managers or seemingly designers as well. It's really tough to find somebody who's a designer who wants to, you know, contribute regularly. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's it's it's interesting. We say like, yeah, we we want this stuff, but I feel like th- some of that needs to come up from those those industries or those professions. I don't know. Maybe yeah, just- I think a a big part of it is just starting to phrase open source contributions not as um, code contributions or whatever, but really as a way to build your personal brand and advance your career and your skill set outside the walls of a like corporate entity. Like the work you do in open source is your work and your way of showing your skill set and talent and you don't need anybody else to like vouch for it or work in that ecosystem. So tying it into someone's personal brand and career is a great way to incentivize them to contribute to open source as opposed to just oh, oh come hack with us, which is and might not necessarily suffice for a lot of people. I mean that that's cool if you if you have time, you know, after work to do it. But I mean, what I'd really love to see is, is this coming from, from the companies that, that get so much value from, from open source, pushing their, you know, their project managers and designers and their technical writers and everybody else, you know, to, to contribute to these projects. I don't know. I don't know how to make that happen, obviously, but I feel like that's, that's what should happen. I do have hope for the future as bigger companies, um, like Microsoft and Google start to be more visible about how they're engaging with open source. I think that kind of acts as a lighthouse and um, like a model to follow for other companies in the industry. So I think overall there's hope. Yeah. I'm, I, I think we do need to be very careful about how we're talking about this. Cause you know, talking about it as a brand builder is like that falls into the same trap as like free internships, right? Like these are ways to get ahead if you already have the privilege of having time and money to be able to do things. Uh, But we have companies making billions of dollars on open source software, right? And so long as we bill it as 
this is something that you're doing to improve, you know, to get ahead. We're leaving out huge numbers of people and we're not uh, sort of putting the responsibility on the people making money from it, right? Like that's an exploitative environment, just like free internships are. And I totally get free internships if you don't have any money, but tech companies have money. Yeah, I think they, so I should clarify this, the like personal brand thing was like not promoting free internships. I'm like very well aware of how exploitive open source can be. Um, But I think the important thing to know is that all of these different motivations can exist in a healthy ecosystem with each other. You can be an open, uh, you can be a for-profit entity that funds time for your employees to work on open source because you care about their own brand and their own career advancement. You also care about some of the marketing and recruitment work that open source will help you do. Um, Like there's a lot of ways to kill two birds with one stone or like multiple birds with one stone just by contributing to open source. And it's a way for you to benefit your company, um, to benefit the ecosystem, benefit your employees, benefit your recruitment efforts. It's like, not just one thing. There's so many different ways to market it and look at it. And it's kind of just about who you're messaging um, and like what are the particular benefits that you share with them? Because the message is different when you're trying to get Google to you know, fund your project versus getting the government to fund your project versus getting a foundation um, versus just like getting college students to be more engaged. Like there's all of these different, it's all marketing in the end is what I'm saying, I guess. Um, exactly. But yeah, I think I, I think it. There's a lot of ways it can help people. Yeah. You're like the more the older I get, the more I believe that life is all marketing. That's. I really think so too. That was a super interesting segment. Um, it ran about as long as expected, and I think we learned a ton of different things um, and had a lot of really interesting ideas come up. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this edition of JS Party. Uh, If we have any links, uh, they will be down in the description um, along with the transcript for this podcast recording. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We're just Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I'm Tim Smith, and my show Away From Keyboard explores the human side of creative work. You'll hear stories sometimes deeply personal about the triumphs and struggles of doing what you love. I need to give myself permission to not overdo it. If I know that the weather forecast is really good tomorrow and I don't have to do a podcast tomorrow and I could go to the beach, maybe I go to the beach. Maybe I do something that is not work. New episodes premiere every other Wednesday. Find the show at changelog.com slash AFK or wherever you listen to podcasts.